and you're listening to The Green Majority. I'm Darren Kaster. Welcome. CIUT 89.5 FM, or possibly one of our wonderful community radio syndicates, is currently broadcasting these environmental brainwaves right into your head. Mm. Stefan, that's, that uh, that's one great. way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kinda, are, are environmental brainwaves, like, bad for you? Are they, like, you know, are they like microwaves, or no, are, they, no, are they only good? They're like, they're like vegan french fries. Uh, okay. They only, they only taste bad for you, but uh, they're, they're actually good for you. Okay. I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Of course, we have Kevin Farmer in the studio as well. Uh, we have a couple of interesting items going on this week, but first I'm going to theme us up. Mm. Uh, we're going to get themed, uh, not just because it's Halloween. I'm not currently putting on. In fact, I'm, I'm currently a bit of a Scrooge here. I'm not wearing any sort of costume item. Yeah. Um, you're dressed up as a business person. Yeah. You know, well, the green pants, I feel like uh, I'm, a, I'm a vegan French fry. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we're having a little bit of fun. Of course, it is Halloween, or at least we're broadca- uh, recording this, if you happen to be listening to, to a podcast or one of our syndicates on Halloween. So we're having a little bit of fun here, surrounded in the CIUT studio with a, a number of jack-o'-lanterns, actually, where students would normally be. So one wonders uh, what happened to the students. But they've been replaced by jack-o'-lanterns. Uh, it is also a cold and blustery and a bit of an awful day. So if it is not there where you live... Feel happy. Yes, you're doing better than us. Absolutely. So the theme, however, is not a is not a Halloween theme per se. Um, it is a food theme, mm. and we'll be doing some food items for the rest of the month. Uh, something on the show somewhere will have something to do with food. Um, so we have a two part uh, interview we did uh, actually on video as well. So this one, uh, as par as often as we can possibly manage it, uh, the interview is also available on YouTube. And as also per usual, the interview on YouTube is a little bit longer. So you're mm. getting uh, a bit of a sample here. Um, this will be part one. We'll be speaking to Haley LaPalm, who was on a little while ago. She was one of the co- local coordinators for My Sustainable Canada. She's going to be talking a little bit uh, with a fellow CSIR, uh, the, in fact, the director of programming, Dave Cranenberg, uh, who is currently the director of programming at CSI. However, he has also spent uh, eight years as the executive director of the Meal Exchange uh, and is a self-described long uh, full life uh, foodie food mm. activist foodie for life foodie for life mm. uh, I'm trying to imagine what the hand signal for that would be uh, someone invent one if you can think of a, a, a the hand signal for foodie for life uh, tweet it at us there, there you go. go at Green Majority yeah um, first, however, we're going to be speaking to um, the very amazing uh, Ben West. Ben West is the um, Tar Sands campaigner for uh, Forest Ethics, and I believe I have him on the line. Go ahead. Are you there, Ben? Yes. Hi. How are you? Thank you very much for joining us. I'm fine. Um, we've had a lot of news going on here and, and on this end of the country. You were back. You were you were in Toronto last time we spoke to you, I believe, but you're you're back in uh, BC. Uh, we've been seeing a lot of news on the front page around here. Um, about local election stuff. We've seen a lot of things about, of course, the uh, people, um, the awful, awful happenings that have been happening in Ottawa and a whole bunch of other stuff. We have not been seeing a lot on pipelines. However, if you happen to be someone like myself who's on any sort of environment mailing list anywhere, you'll be very, very aware about Energy East. So I was wondering if we could start there, if you would just do a little bit of an update for us on what's going on with Energy East. Sure. Well, uh, I mean, of course, Energy East is a massive project, although it's been, um, you know, a little bit under the radar, I guess you could say, compared to the Keystone XL pipeline or in British Columbia, you know, definitely the um, Kinder Morgan and Bridge Northern Gateway pipelines have been, uh, you know, a, sort of more of a, a focus. Um, the the current state of play for, for Energy East is that, uh, you know, the opposition is growing rapidly, uh, and there's been delays now to the project because of concerns around uh, beluga whales. Uh, 
um, which is a, a big step in the right direction. It's not a, a permanent situation, but it has slowed down uh, the ability for the company to to move forward. Uh, they have now filed with the National Energy Board, uh, which kind of kickstarts the process. Uh, which under this new National Energy Board process, is uh, you know very much truncated, uh, limits people's ability to participate. Um, and actually, we're currently in court fighting this uh, this same process as it relates to Line Nine B in Ontario and um, the Kinder Morgan uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion in British Columbia. Um, we're very much hoping that the, uh, the this new process, which only allows somebody who's deemed to be uh, quote unquote directly affected uh, by a pipeline to um, to participate, to comment, uh, and uh, does not allow things like climate change or, uh, you know, the, the implications of the tar sands upstream uh, to even be considered in the decision-making process, which uh, is a stark contrast from the commitment made by the Obama administration in the United States to, to not pursue Keystone XL if it would uh, make things worse for the climate, which uh, it, it seems like a no-brainer that it would. Um, so Energy East is... Uh, you know, as some would say, the the Trans uh, Canada company who uh, is behind it, who is also behind Keystone XL, uh, the media in the United States is actually waking up to this a bit more, saying that this is kind of uh, Keystone's new focus that they uh, that they don't believe Keystone's going to be able to go through. So they're shifting their focus to this other pipeline. I think the truth is that they want both. Uh, you know, this is really about trying to get uh, tar sands oil to tidewater in a variety of different places and. Um, there's a big difference between the Gulf Coast and, and the East Coast in terms of uh, the ease of reaching, uh, you know, various different markets, especially in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, but that being said, uh, you know, it is true that, uh, that the tar sands are, are landlocked and uh, they're basically running out of capacity with the existing pipeline and rail line uh, currently. So you definitely need new pipelines to be built to be able to facilitate the expansion of, uh, of you know, one of the largest sources of fossil fuels on the planet, um, and I, I think to a certain extent it's good news uh, that we're seeing already that, uh, you know, that these pipeline fights have been successful enough that we've uh, already seen, uh, you know, projects uh, delayed or, or even abandoned uh, in Alberta. And, um, you know, that we have folks in industry saying that that's the end result of, um, uh, of projects uh, like Keystone and, uh, and Enbridge being in trouble. So one of the things we've um, been talking about recently um – is the there was the of course the the train explosion in Saskatchewan? Uh, we covered that on our YouTube uh, channel. There's been a there's been a number of rail related incidents recently as well. Um, when you, we're talking about sort of landlocking or or you know sort of quote unquote fighting the tar sands by not by making it so that it can't go anywhere and be like well we might not be able to stop you sort of getting the contracts but at least you won't be able to do anything with it and hopefully you'll realize that's what we're doing and and quit uh, or at least that seems to be what the what the sort of <laughs> what the strategy seems to be um would you comment on on how much of an impact do you think that some of these high profile um train accidents are having on on the public opinion do you think that that's that that is being translated as the same story or do you think sort of people hear this and and they're not sort of putting two and two together as far as the general public is concerned well i mean the uh the incident in uh, lac majantique when it first happened uh was was really a wake-up call for for many people around north america really that uh you know there was all of a sudden this new threat of uh, increased shipments of oil by rail and of course the uh, you know various different dangerous uh you know things move on our rail lines uh, all the time but um you know this 
the the the, the rail companies have, have drastically increased it. I think you know to the score something like a six thousand percent increase of the uh, amount of oil that's moving on on rail lines, uh, and really that's happened in the time since Keystone XL was in trouble and. Uh, um, and the pipelines in BC were also, uh, you know, facing some pretty stiff challenges and, and delays. So, you know, that situation uh, in Lac Antique, unfortunately, I think has actually had uh, you know, a number of different results. I mean, beyond the obvious horrible uh, impact that it had uh, for the people in that community, but the, you know, it was actually the one moment in British Columbia where we started to see the uh, the polling results. Move just a little bit in the in industry's favor in terms of support for pipelines, um, and you know I, many analysts have, have basically said that that was the end result of uh, you know an argument being made by industry that basically it was going to that this oil was going to get to market whether it be by pipeline or by rail line, and uh, and because so many rail lines run directly through urban centers, uh, you know there was a, a belief that perhaps. You know, if this is going to happen one way or the other, you know, maybe rail's not the right way to go. Um, you know, I think the truth is that for industry to get anywhere close to the to the level of expansion, uh, you know, that they want to see in Alberta, uh, you know, an increase from about two million barrels a day today, um, you know, which was about a, you know, for perspective, in, in two thousand one was about a hundred thousand barrels. Uh, you know, so we've seen drastic, drastic increases. Uh, you know, the tar sands really only became viable when. The price of oil, you know, got up to around a hundred dollars barrel in, in around two thousand two thousand one. Um, but you know, the uh, the argument is is basically being made that uh, that that oil is going to get to market one way or the other, and and uh, you know, the fear around rail lines is uh, is problematic. Uh, the truth is that they need all, all of the above. It, it's not one or the other. Right? You know, to get from from two million barrels a day up to five uh, in the next ten years and uh, and ten in the next. Canada is actually, to a certain extent, misguided. 
Uh, not to say that it would be a huge disaster to, to see rail incidents with uh, with bitumen or, or uh, bitumen in its more solid form uh, in Canada. And, and you know, if this stuff is spilled into waterways, it's even more difficult to clean up uh, and problematic in many ways. Um, but the, uh, the the rail versus pipeline conversation has definitely been a bit of a game changer in, in the midst of this conversation, and uh, has has woken us up to a whole other. Uh, set of concerns and, and issues, and in, in some ways, I think is almost a backdoor approach for the oil industry to try to get the oil to market, as they're having difficulty getting through, uh, you know, the public process as it relates to pipelines. So now they're looking for ways to, you know, get oil to market that uh, that that doesn't uh, require them to, to go through that sort of strenuous process because it's existing corridors that they already have, uh, you know, permits to to move that kind of product through. Uh, a big part of the problem, I think, uh, has to do actually with the fact that um, you're talking about very old rail cars that were never inter- intended to move this kind of product, uh, the dot one eleven cars. Uh, and one of the goals of the Blast Zone campaign is, is basically to get, uh, you know, these kind of oil products not moving in those kinds of rail cars, which uh, seems like, you know, really an obvious place to start in terms of uh, health and safety in the immediate uh, as we you know move towards actually reducing our dependence on fossil fuel overall. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. And actually, based on the based on the story we just covered, I was just remembering those those one eleven cars. Not only are they getting old and they weren't designed for what they're carrying, but uh, I believe it. I could be wrong here. I'm just going from memory, but I believe up to seventy percent of this of the cars in service are those cars. Uh, of the ones that are carrying these sorts of materials, uh, are that sort of particular model of outdated, rusty, not designed for what they're carrying uh, type uh, vehicles. Um, Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for Ben. But I, I want to thank you first of all for for coming on and, and speaking to us. Is there any resources or campaigns or anything you would like to direct our listeners to to check out? Well, I mean, uh, it just I guess in these last seconds, I just want to to let people know that there's been uh, um, a direct action happening uh, up on Burnaby Mountain in British Columbia. Kinder Morgan has just gotten access to uh, to to do some exploratory work in Burnaby. Uh, are actually in court today fighting against the uh, uh, against Kinder Morgan, who's filed a, a three-inch-tall uh, uh, set of, uh, of court documents against uh, these, these brave folks who are trying to stand up to this company. Um, if you uh, go on Facebook and um, and look for that, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact name of the Facebook event, but uh, if, you, if you do a little searching around for Kinder Morgan and Burnaby on Facebook, uh, you want to send your support to people out there, uh, I'm sure it would be much appreciated. And um, you know, and, and definitely there's uh, tons of resources that could be found at, uh, at a variety of websites. Uh, you know, Forest Ethics uh, website would be one place to start. There's also Pipe Up Against Enbridge, uh, pretty good clearinghouse, or um, the Tar Sand Solutions Network. Uh, you'll find information from, from a whole bunch of different groups all across Canada and the United States. All right, and we'll make sure, uh, I'll look up the uh, the Facebook group there, and I'll make sure to put that on the show post. If people are interested, just make sure to uh, check out greenmajority.ca after the show. Ben West from Forest Ethics, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. All right, have a great day. We're just going to go to our first music break here, folks. You're listening to The Green Majority, in case you're just tuning in, broadcasting all across Canada. But we're going to go to a music break now, and we'll be right back.
All right, and I'm Darren Kester. You're listening to the Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. We're going to now go to our middle feature, the food-themed item for this week. Uh, so this was actually done as a two-part interview. The reason for that was because it, uh, it was long and it was all good. Mm. So I decided not to cut it. We just broke it into two parts. So we're doing basically a food theme for all of November. We're just going to go ahead and sneak today in as November. It's close enough. Mm. And uh, and so this one will be talking to Haley Lapom, who's uh, uh, one of the um, coordinators for My Sustainable Canada. She particularly works in the area of leading mentorship programs and a series of province-wide workshops to help so purchasing uh, social purchasing reach critical mass. So she works with things like uh, healthcare, higher education, municipalities, public sector facilities, and supply chain. So all of the sort of not, I wouldn't say back end, but the everything that's not front end, mm-hmm. uh, as far as uh, as far as working with that and trying to help promote them, use um, more sustainable options when they're available, more local options when they're available. So very uh, up to her elbows, I would say, uh, in these sort of food issues, uh, talking about localism and all those sorts of other things, which I think is is fairly synonymous. We'll find out what their what their thoughts were. Uh, our second guest, however, we basically kind of ran this as a as as a bit of a roundtable, and then. Um, my third mic didn't work. Yes. Um, so this was supposed to be a three-way conversation. I actually was asking them questions, but we just clipped out their answers so that it's easier on your ears. Uh, however, a more complete version, as I said, will be available on the YouTube. Uh, our second guest is Dave Cranenberg. Dave Cranenberg is uh, the director of programming over the Center for Social Innovation, uh, which also happens to be where we work, just for disclosure. <laughs> he, doesn't, he didn't pay us or anything for no. this interview, but, just, you know, we know. Um... And also, but uh, I think more relevant to this conversation, not more important, but more relevant to this conversation is that he is currently uh, about to launch his own food initiative to get back into it because previous to being at CSI, among many other charitable things, he was also at the Social Economy Charter Development Committee and all sorts of other cool things. He spent nearly eight years uh, at the Meal Exchange, and not just at the Meal Exchange, but the executive director thereof. Um, so both have very lengthy resumes in food, and without further ado, we're going to go to their answers to uh, our my first question which essentially was like, what is the role um, does food actually play? Uh, and uh, in, the, sorry, excuse me, my little note here dropped off for a second. Um, what, essentially, what role does food play in, you know, our rights? Like what, how much of an access to food do we have? So, okay, so the, the specific question that I asked was, uh, was about the role, to describe the role of food security in the access poverty uh, in a, in a, of healthy, affordable food. So sort of what role does food play in our, in sort of what expectations do we have for, for society? What are our minimum allowances and expectations of, of what a healthy society looks like? So I'm going to start with where most people's understanding of hunger, low income begins, and that's with food banks. And we know that in Canada, each month, uh, around 800,000 people access a food bank. Now, food banks are just one mechanism of emergency support. You also have like um, shelters, drop-in centers, every place where somebody goes so that they can access a meal of some sort, whether prepared or so they can take home and prepare. Um, so food banks don't actually capture the full picture of who's hungry in Canada. Uh, for that, you have to look at some other information around, and the best source is uh, a study from a couple of years ago, like 1.9 million Canadians live in food insecure households, which means that they've answered yes to you know, two or more questions around 
um, you know, that they're worried about their ability to feed themselves, they skip meals, they sacrifice diet in order to make ends meet. But really what it comes down to is that, you know, month to month, you know, whatever income they have coming in from working, from assistance, from any other source, that once they're, once they've paid rent and bills, you know, and transportation costs to get to work, and all of these other, like, things that you can't negotiate in your, in your household budget, there's very little left over for food. And so at the end of the month, they're, they're looking for support from the social safety net that we've created in Canada, which really was created as a, like, as a stopgap, as a, as a short-term solution. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is that food banks have now been around, like, in a community sense, outside of church basements and other community organizations, but in a community food bank sense, have been around since the early 80s, and we've stopped. We haven't, or for the most part, we've start, stopped. We haven't evolved our approach to hunger and food insecurity in Canada in, what, is that 30 years now? Mm -hmm. 30 years, if my math is correct? And that's the work that some people are starting to venture on, is how do you ensure access to healthy, nutritious food for all Canadians at all times, you know, and for now and into the future. And so, and I say that into the future because that's where the environmental discussion comes in, is that are we front-loading our, our needs and going to pay for it later? Um, and that's where sometimes I think the local sustainable discussions of food systems come in. Okay, so food is exciting because it is the intersection of so many different things. Um, so we're coming at it from a, an environmental perspective. Also, like a, a social justice, food access question, and looking at it systemically and trying to understand some of the underlying phenomena yeah. of why are people hungry? You know, why, why are we exceeding the carrying capacity of our, our planet and how can we do this better? And so with the work um, around public sector institutions, what we see is there is a really good role for the state to play, like um, to ensure that its citizens can be fed and for, this, for the state to make sure that it has the infrastructure it needs to, to feed its people, uh, to build it in a way with like seven generations in mind, uh, to create jobs. I mean, with food, there's an opportunity for public sector kind of led initiatives. I think, to create the sort of demand that's needed to build the middle of the food system that I see is missing and part of the problem why we have these questions of kind of environmental degradation, problems with food access. Um, and it is one uh, mechanism, this idea of having your publicly funded, like tax funded institutions leading the way with their demand to uh, build the infrastructure to respond to those things. So it's one mechanism among many to address kind of some of the problems that you're talking about, some of the reasons that we come at it uh, for, and that that solution exists kind of alongside others. So, you know, um, when we talk about the future of food and feeding people, like, you're not going to get rid of food banks tomorrow, right? You're going to have these slow transitions to... Or you're, we're looking increasingly towards building capacity within mm -hmm. communities to feed themselves. And I think that has been, um, that's the work I guess I observe in a lot of the organizations, um, ourselves included, that are within the community, that, that look at how we build capacity. And we do it by not just building infrastructure, so supporting the development of strong local supply chains, but also knowledge within communities about how to grow, how to access, like retaining the ability to feed oneself in a way that mm -hmm. is culturally appropriate. 
Now I'm going off on a tangent, but anyhow. Well, it's a good tangent. It's like where we where we agree on a lot of things is that there's it's the high cost of cheap food. Mm. Like we've created a food system yes. that encourages cheap, 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 cheap um, calories. I guess, for yeah. lack of a better term. Um, and we already know, like the work that the, like the work of the last decade has been looking at what what is the cost of that. And there's some numbers out there. Like we know that, you know, the cost uh, of the the health costs around this around cheap food, highly processed, is mm-hmm. 6.2 billion, I think, from Health Canada was their latest figure. Um, the cost of poverty overall is about 40 billion or something. Mm-hmm. No, wait, no, I lied. It's actually higher than that. It's like 72 billion in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so I, I come at it from the approach of you know, like public institutions, private companies, civil society, anybody and everybody. Like that economic impact, you know, the, the effect of all of this is on the health and well-being of citizens, of Canadians, mm-hmm. as well as on productivity uh, in the workplace. Like, everybody wants a, like, a fulfilling, sustainable livelihood, mm-hmm. and yet the food system is not set up to support that right now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, that's the fun challenge ahead of us, is how do you do that? How do you, you know, if it's costing us that much, then shouldn't there be solutions that, that like, don't cost us as much, mm-hmm. that get us to a place of, you know, like, I don't know, like, a true cost accounting, I guess, of the food mm-hmm. system? that it's no longer <laughs> yeah all these externalities like that we pay on the back end again like hot, like yes food is cheap but the high cost comes in 5 10 15 20 25 y- years later mm-hmm. in our healthcare system um, you know and on the environment and i think that's like the work of the next few decades which is crazy is reversing that trend Mm -hmm. that we can't keep cashing checks that we pay later yeah i guess the part of the question is who will acknowledge those things like who is the overseer kind of you know who's who's able to recognize that okay we're getting our food for this cheap but hey we're paying for it again in Mm -hmm. the costs on our healthcare system you know is it um and I, I think increasingly there is beginning to be some recognition in places mm-hmm. like hospitals, especially like within our food service departments, mm-hmm. um, recognizing kind of these connections and seeing them. So I guess the, the exciting question for me is, okay, so where can we start translating um, the what you're talking about and the recognition yeah. that these things are connected into action? What are the things that we mm-hmm. can do now? And I, I think... Um, the more we can educate people to see those connections between things, the more willing they will be to undertake a project like true cost accounting, which takes a lot of time, you know, if mm-hmm. you are sourcing food and it's and, and you've got a busy day ahead of you and you've got, you know, a thousand people to feed in the next, you know, I mean, consistently you're always feeding them, um, what are you going to do? Are you going to say pick this from guy A who's going to give you the cheap, convenient thing that you know and trust, or are you going to take the time to go and say, okay, well, this one over here is, you know, one and a half times as expensive, but doesn't involve all this, like, packaging around it. And it was locally sourced, so it was also creating jobs within uh, our economy, and it didn't travel as far. And, oh, hey, like, you know, my, my, my niece's partner was involved in growing this food and I know something about the supply chain that I came from. 
I don't think most people have, you know, the time or the wherewithal to make Agreed. choice B, even if they feel like it's the right choice. So it's be looking at the discrepancy kind of between what we would like to do and uh, what we actually do. I think closing this gap, I think this is, there is a, uh, the, the public sector is like primed or it's ready to close this gap. It kind of knows how to close that gap from some of its work in the past, like with smoking cessation campaigns. They recognized something that was going on, some phenomenon socially that was not good for the society. It was making money for somebody, but it wasn't good for the society. Uh, and they stepped up and took leadership there. And the next thing we talked about was, um, was of course, a, a bit of a pet issue for me. Uh, which is that the the line by the CEO of Nestle who uh, was talking about the idea that that the solution was really just privatize everything. The market will will the market will magically like a magical fairy take care of everything. So so I asked Haley and Dave to respond to to people like the CEO of Nestle, people that think that that privatization is the solution to all of our problems. I do believe that food and water are right. This is this is like I don't know what that guy was thinking when he said that. Uh, you know, all water resources should be privatized. I think um, there's this idea of the commons, so things that are part of the collective good that are uh, held within a society um, to ensure that everybody has some kind of like level of uh, well-being in the society. So, like a, a, a great example is like a pasture land, because uh, you've heard the tragedy of the commons. You can imagine this idea of of you know, if we exploit the commons for our own benefit, then it, it, it infringes on the ability of others to, to, to thrive. But if we hold the commons in such a way that there is respect for the people around us, and maybe there is a, a role for third parties to play in holding those commons, um, it, when people have access to a certain amount of resources that people are entrepreneurial by nature like people will do things to to survive and will be creative and so if you do something like take away kind of like the the baseline essential uh, access to to water or to land to grow food I mean I think you're sinking on ship <laughs> um, because there it, there has been a rush to privatize you know huge land grabs uh, rush to privatize water, and there, that has been met with a huge amount of indigenous resistance all over the world. Because um, if that is allowed to happen, I think this like growing inequity uh, between countries and between people within countries will only continue to to be exacerbated. And I think that's dangerous. My response to him, I, I don't even know where to start because <laughs> the the challenge is actually like it's a. It's about ownership, and whether that ownership of a of something is public or private, like concentration in that case. So, the folks that advocate that food and water are commodities, um, you know, that all land and water, you know, is something that that can be privatized, that you can't have ownership over. Like, I know that's what we're up against, but do I even want to like? There's such a fundamental divide around, like. Like around viewpoints that I'm not going to waste my energy trying to convince them otherwise. Mm -hmm. I'm going to invest my energy in building the system that I'd like to see exactly. around collective ownership, around these things as public goods. Um, and like, I, and I think that's that's the overall concern of a global food system is you know, and it's Raj Patel from Stuffed and Starved who 
does this really well, and it's just that we have an hourglass figure right now of our, you know, where you have all of the producers, the growers, the fisher folk up here, like, and they're wide, like, there's millions of them, billions of them, like, globally, right? And then our food system starts coming down like this into, you know, like, as you go through the, the processors or the purchasers, the purchasers, the processors, the distributors, the retailers, you know, all the way down to then all of us as eaters. And so the challenge is actually, okay, well, there's this concentration down here that looks like it's hyper-efficient, and I love efficiency, like, and I think it's important, but we've created a, like, a very brittle system where all of this comes in, and so it's somehow, like, widening that middle of the food system. So when people talk about rebuilding the middle of the food system, it's that, and that rebuilding of the middle forces us to local solutions, it forces us to, I guess, kind of redundancies within our system, which just makes sense. Like, if all of the meat in Canada goes to one or two processing facilities and there's a problem there, then our entire meat food system is compromised. Whereas if you have a number of processing facilities, so the abattoirs, you know, then you, you don't face that same brittleness in the system. Mm -hmm. So the ownership issue is, is I don't know, I'm not even going to argue with the CEO of Nestle, mm -hmm. but I'm going to say, how do we develop that more robust, resilient, like redundant um, redundancies in a food value chain? Um, and I think by doing that, you start living the values of like communal ownership. Like I think of being able to protect farmland that's near cities Right? And you see this in some cases already in Ontario where people are excited around protecting farmland or preventing mega quarries or creating green belts or supporting local because there's an increased understanding that the ability to protect this or keep this in like agricultural production, um, whether it be commons or you're supporting small-scale farmers who share your viewpoints, um, you know, that you're, you're seeing the connection between water tables, between environmental stewardship of land, and that your choices as a eater, as a consumer, can influence that. Um, so it's, it's a tricky one, like food is a right versus food is a commodity. Um, I land towards right, and I think the challenge is how do you actually bring about that right? Like, there's so many, like, the role of the state, the role of industry, the role of the citizen all comes into play in how that comes about. Because my challenge is that I'm a believer in small government, so I don't see the state as being the most efficient or effective vehicle of ensuring any of this. I think they can create an enabling environment for a lot of it, you know, by enacting legislation that either is kind of... In like decreasing negative behavior like they did in smoking cessation or increasing positive behavior. Um, you know, but ultimately I think because I see the solution is also partly in the marketplace, like we need to rebuild the middle of the food system, think, we need market-based solutions. I think absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that's why these like broader institutions, like hospitals and universities, always going to be around. Well, hospitals, definitely going to be around. Universities, <laughs> we'll see where they go. <laughs> but but um, it's kind of this uh, this place between uh, government and private companies, right? They're going to be buying food. They're participating in the economy yeah. in the same way that, you know, you or I or a restaurant, you know, would be buying. Mm -hmm. Not exactly the same, but similar enough. Yep. And um, I, I, I think that at the same time, uh, this idea that you have of, 
if you imagine again your hourglass and the, and, the, and the squeeze in the center, these institutions are building up the infrastructure kind of around that pinch point. Mm -hmm. um, they're building up the infrastructure in that in that area th through their demands, um, yeah. through their investments in a way they're what yeah. uh, you know people would call voting with your dollar. Um, I think I see it as a, a partial solution. Like they coexist. Like that public sector buying coexists with all the other buying that happens in the society. Mm -hmm. And the important piece is building up that kind of parallel system that you do want to see. All right. And then we actually had at the very end of the interview, uh, there's a number of items that were coming up for uh, Food Month this month. And uh, and they, they both had a number of suggestions of things to check out. And I didn't want to wait people make people wait until some of the events had already passed. So th this is actually a clip from the end of the interview where I just asked them to talk about any local events that were going on. And boy, did I get an answer. There's a ton of stuff coming up this month. Let's hear that. Whether you're interested in just getting started off or you're a seasoned explorer in the world of food, month of November is crazy exciting. The number mm -hmm. of stuff that's coming up is, is immense. I'll start with um, Meal Exchanges Trick or Eat campaign, though, which is happening right now and will will continue. You know, it's it's a Halloween food drive, but they're they're really trying to use their their ability to reach hundreds of thousands of Canadians on one night to change the conversation in Canada around hunger by asking a simple question, inviting all Canadians to participate. And it's like, with hunger on the rise in Canada, what can Canadians do to end it? You know, so it's meant to start like changing the conversation and the approach that, for the most part, we've all been told that, you know. Hunger is the problem, food banks are the solution. They're one approach, we need to do more. Um, then on November 6th, there is a six degrees of social innovation at the Center for Social Innovation, so CSI Annex. And we're exploring the topic of food throughout the month of November, so this is kind of the kickoff event where we're gonna be exploring the future of protein, which means crickets and insects. So we have a speaker, uh, CSI member Aruna, who will be speaking to that, and there's the opportunity to taste crickets. Um, I personally think insect protein is something we're going to see on our diets in the near future. Um, I'm really excited about it. The, the also have Food Secure Canada's Assembly, so this is a national organization that works with farmers, advocates of all sorts, academics, um, practitioners, um, so they're getting together November 13th to 16th in Halifax, an amazing learning opportunity and ability to connect with uh, yeah, leaders from across Canada that have been advocating for a healthy and sustainable food system for two, three decades. Um, you also, following that, you have Food Fight, which is a CSI event being hosted in Regent Park, uh, where we will be gathering, there's about 30 plus um, organizations and businesses all in the vein of a sustainable food system. Um, it's an opportunity for anybody to come and learn how they can get involved either as a volunteer, an advocate, a customer, an eater, like come and see how people are tackling this problem. Um, and we won't, in fact, be throwing food, though, will we? We won't be throwing <laughs> any food. That's There'll food waste. No food wasted. No food wasted, because a third of all food is already wasted. Um, and then the fifth opportunity is my is is the project that I'm I'm embarking on. Um, the The name of it is Rhizome, and it's developing an accelerator slash incubator for 
for entrepreneurs and enterprises that are dedicating themselves to a sustainable food system. I'll be launching that in January, so through the months of November and December, I'm hosting a series of discussions, consultations. Um, it's open to anyone around, like, what would this look like, a startup, like an accelerator? How do we support, how do we create and support disruptive innovations for <coughs> a sustainable food system? Um, so obviously I'm very, very excited about that one, come one, come all. Um, but yeah, month of November is insane and I just see this work getting more and more fun and exciting mm -hmm. as like solutions are tested, experimented and grown. Mm. Uh, so I'll share three things, uh, mostly geared at public sector purchasers and the, the, the farmers, producers, processors that want to or already supply them. Um, so these are, we have two capacity building uh, workshops, one coming up in Kingston on October 31st, and that's hosted um, with the Queen School of Business, um, who are, uh, we're going to be bringing together institutional buyers and the suppliers, so building that farm to institution supply chain and having conversations about uh, what the city of Kingston wants to see. Um, and then similarly, similarly, we'll be doing a workshop on November 5th um, at Humber College in uh, Toronto, again for institutions and uh, the supply chains, the community kind of members that are supporting that farm to institution supply chain. Um, both of these events are being co-hosted um, at the facilities, the campuses of uh, uh, two members, uh, two different members of my, my Sustainable Canada's um, um, public purse procurement mentorship program um, and they'll be able to show off some of the great work that they've been able to do within their facilities toward building a culture of social purchasing. And uh, coming up after that, I will be accepting kind of uh, new applications to the next iteration of the public purse procurement mentorship program which offers uh, support for a year to public institutions that are looking at scaling up um, their local sustainable food purchasing and kind of deepening the conversation about social procurement within their institutions. So if you know of anyone uh, in a, on a campus, within a municipality, uh, within a long-term care home or a hospital who is in some way related to food purchasing and you think they are interested in taking some leadership on the issue, send them our way. All right. I want to make sure that uh, that we uh, leave enough time for Kevin Farmer. So thank you very much. That was part one of our food interview with uh, Dave Cranenberg and Haley LaPalm. We're going to go right to our music break so that I don't cut into Kevin's time too much. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Green Majority.
are back. We're in the final stretch here. Kevin Farmer, you've got only about eight minutes, so I won't cut into your time any further. The floor is yours. Whoops. Hi, everyone. <laughs> no, that's okay. Everyone needs a break from me, <laughs> uh, e- even me. Um, so, you, you know, politically, the, the talk of the town this week and that last week, for, for obvious reasons, uh, is centered on the definition of, of terrorism. And, um, you know, the question, the que- a, a question right now is, was the attack on Parliament Hill an, an act of terrorism, and uh, the distinction matters because um, you know we we, we treat uh, terrorism and acts of terrorism uh, differently than other crimes, and uh, there is um, the the case is being made for for this act to um, run uh, uh, to to be political cover to introduce new legislation uh, regarding uh, terrorism. So you know why is this an environmental issue? Well, it, it's not exactly; it's just an issue for environmentalists. Um, because it's an open secret now that uh, the Harper government uh, spies on environmental activists. It's it's just uh, this is this this information is just part of the public record now. Um, so, and it, what's interesting about this is that you don't even have to self-identify as an environmentalist for for extra scrutiny. What what matters here is wh- whether the government thinks you're an environmentalist or not. So you might be concerned about fracking because of what it might do to your uh, aquifer. Or, or a pipeline for what it might, a leaky pipeline for what it might do to your agricultural land and your livelihood. You might, you might be concerned about being downstream from any nu- or downwind of any number of things. Uh, and and the, every other day of the year, you might not self-identify as an environmentalist at all. But these are the kinds of things that are inviting uh, scrutiny. <clears throat> and uh, you know, as someone who is a, an outspoken environmentalist, and I'm sure most, a lot of people I know. Uh, you, you can you can be called an eco terrorist online at the drop of a hat nowadays, and it's just especially worrisome that uh, these terms are getting conflated in public discourse. But uh, but 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 without a doubt, um, Joe Oliver, among other uh, Harper ministers, has actively demonized environmentalists. We've been called radicals. Uh, NGOs have been accused of being essentially money launderers, which is an extremely serious accusation. Uh, so, um, uh, so this is this is why it's this is why it's you know an issue for environmentalists because it, it not only not only might you find yourself on the wrong end of some of this legislation, but it does serve to chill advocacy and it does serve to chill uh, activism on environmental issues. So there's you know the, sort of the follow-on effects. Uh, how are we doing for time? You have exactly five minutes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's see if I can make sense. Of this. So you know, according to the criminal code, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, this might actually qualify as an act of terrorism, uh, but you know, and this is a precy of the act from a government uh, website, the Department of Justice. Uh, it, it says in Canada, Section eighty-three point zero one of the Criminal Code defines terrorism as an act committed uh, in whole or in part for a political, religious, or ideological purpose, objective, or cause, with the intention of intimidating the public with regard to its security, 
including its economic security or compelling a person, a government, or a democratic or an international organization to do or to refrain from doing any act. And I think we can agree that's, you know, an awfully broad uh, uh, statute. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, just I don't know how creative you would have to get to call uh, what went on at the G20 an act of terrorism. Uh, you know, the, there it, it was was that, you know, the, these officers that removed their identification that day, uh, did they intend to intimidate the public? Did they, you know, did they go there knowing they were going to commit acts of violence on peaceful protesters? Um, uh, you know, it just depends how you interpret these things, right? Uh, I was going to ask you if that was a rhetorical question. Or not. <laughs> well, what's interesting, you know, just as a side note to this, um, I don't want to pick on anyone, but, uh, you know, I am kind of sarcastic. But, you know, in, in the wake of the shootings, Chief Blair here in uh, in Toronto, he went on air to announce that uh, uh, he was uh, he was going to uh, sort of uh, rate, he was he was going to, uh, how did he phrase this, but just sort of make a visible police presence you know, on the TTC and in public spaces and whatnot, anywhere where he thought a visible police presence could reassure the public. And I thought, well, I, I'm sure this is all really well-intentioned, but actually since the G20, I haven't really found a visible police presence to be all that reassuring. <laughs> so uh, it just, it, you know, and I know he's well-intentioned on this. He's the one, I'm pretty sure he's the one who ended that obnoxious kettling incident that went on. Um, so, okay, two quick comments before, before, before I run out of time. Um, it's it's really unfortunate that in this conversation uh, we might be you know restigmatizing mental illness. Uh, this is especially poignant uh, while we're celebrating and mourning uh, uh, Nathan Cirillo and Patrice Vincent, and we should, we absolutely should. Uh, but there's a there's a there's a, a way to it's you know while we discuss the motives of this shooter uh, and and enter into unintentionally a conversation about mental illness. Uh, let's remember all of those veterans. Uh, who came home from combat missions with grievously wounded minds and can't get the help they need uh, from this government. Uh, you know, these, these, these veterans who end up taking their own lives, I would say that they also have given their lives in the service of this country. They just didn't succumb to their wounds on the battlefield. Uh, so, you know, we've got live heroes that we could look after. And it's a little ironic to see um, MPs and cabinet ministers getting counseling in the, counseling in the wake of this traumatic uh, episode in their lives, but that's just a taste of what has caused all this harm to these veterans who are being abandoned by this government. That's a little off topic, but I can't help it. Uh, so, just want to. So, when CBC News did did a masterful job of not turning this into a, a sensationalism and uh, and hype fest, that I think we we've all we could all name a few uh, networks that would do that and did do that. Um, uh, uh, so CBC was very calm and very collected, but at one point they um, they they after the shooting, all of the leaders of all of the parties came out and delivered a uh, a speech, uh, and and once again Elizabeth May was conspicuously absent. And I'm not stumping for Elizabeth May, but I do think she's amazing. Uh, and she wrote, so she d- did not get a chance to speak, but she blogged while she was in lockdown at a point in time when I think everyone could have been right, was rightfully afraid for their personal safety. And this is just a paragraph of what she wrote. We do know that throughout history, these kinds of events open the door to a loss of democracy. Naomi Klein details the elements of seizing the opportunity created by tragedy or tumult in shock doctrine. The title of her new and important book on climate, This Changes Everything, is correct. The threat of the climate crisis changes everything. The shootings on Parliament Hill do not change everything. It is up to all of us to ensure that 
to ensure that to the extent we encounter demands for change, we keep in the forefront of our minds that once we surrender any rights, it is very difficult to restore them. Let's demand answers, sensible policies, and proportionate responses. And I can just only say amen to that. Terrorism is not an existential threat. Global warming is. All right. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, last thing I'll say before we run out of time was that the, the conservative Harper, Harper government appears to use one-step conditional logic for all my coding friends. Basically, if agree with me on everything, then move on to step two. If not, tag environmentalist. <laughs> all right. That's it for the Green Majority this week. Thank you so much for listening. Coast to coast, you can check out any other information. You can get the videos for all our headlines and all the other hard work that we do over at greenmajority.ca. That's it, folks, for us. Have a good green week, and we'll see everybody real soon. Thank you.